Hello, everybody. Welcome back to High School Not So Much a Musical, the podcast made by high schoolers for high schoolers. People tend to view economics as a complex subject dealing with data analysis and graphs. And while that may be true on the highest level, everyone makes subconscious economic decisions in their lives without even realizing. Our guest today is Mr. Tom Rooney, who recently completed 25 years as an economics and history teacher, in addition to being part of the Illinois State Senate. As such, not only does he have a nuanced understanding of complex economic thoughts and theories, but his education experience allows him to communicate those complex ideas simply to the average Joe. To hear more about Mr. Rooney, his occupation, and basic economic knowledge to apply to your life, stay tuned right after this. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride through the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanki and Ayush Agarwal. Uh, Mr. Rooney, could you talk a little bit about your career in education and the classes you've taught over the years? Sure. Um, I actually just finished up a nice round number. Uh, I finished up my 25th year at uh, Leiden High Schools, where I teach. Um, Over the course of those 25 years, uh, I've taught econ every year for 24 of those. Uh, When I got to Leiden, uh, I did not get the econ assignment, but I got it in my second year and I've been doing it all the way along. Aside from that, I also taught um, all the different levels of US history. We have regular, we have honors, we have AP. Uh, I'm the A-push guy uh, right now and have been for, well, ever since the new test. So I guess that would be 2015. Um, Before I taught A-push, I taught European history AP. And something I always thought was kind of funny, back with the old Euro test, they used to break questions down into categories. And in the category that contained economics, my Euro kids were always above the national average in that particular category. So apparently I've been sneaking econ even into classes that I teach that aren't econ ones. So uh, I've had global studies and sociology too, but that's, that's a pretty good summation of what I've done at my school. Okay, so I have a quick follow-up and I found it interesting that you taught both AP Euro and APUSH because I'm taking AP Euro now in my junior year. Ayush is taking AP World and we both took APUSH in 10th grade. And I think that taking AP Econ in 9th grade was a really big help for us because a lot of APUSH, like after the Great Depression, during the World War and stuff like that, it helped us understand how the war helped bring America out of economic crises because there was increased government spending and stuff like that. I could talk about this for a really long time. But um, Ayush and I, having both taken AP and microeconomics, now have a better understanding of how our society functions and how people make decisions. So my general question to you is, why is economic knowledge such an important skill to have in today's world? I think that's one of the easier questions to answer because the biggest reason is because people don't normally think economically. And a lot of the bigger mistakes come from that. Um, one of the my favorite expressions in class is more than anything else, economics is a way of thinking. It's a quote I stole a long time ago from an economist. And a lot of the things people do just reflect that the economic way of thinking is different 
Um, number one, a lot of people haven't learned it yet. And number two, even when people do learn it, as I say to my students, it is so easy to slide back into our old ways of thinking that um, you really have to stay on your toes to keep thinking economically. And I think a lot of things, if we would pay a little bit more attention to the economics of it, wouldn't be as difficult as they are today. Now, you mentioned there how people usually don't think economically, but I feel like there are scenarios where, you know, people subconsciously make economic decisions, right? For example, uh, let's say that it's like a Thursday or Friday night. Let's say it's a Thursday night, so it's a weekday night, and uh, I really want to go to the movies. I feel like stressed out from work, stuff like that. So uh, I go to the movies, and in doing so, I neglect a super important assignment from my boss, right? Wouldn't that be like the economic concept of, okay, thinking that your marginal utility, sorry, your marginal benefit from going to the movie theater was greater than the marginal cost of maybe like losing your job or, 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 or just like getting into a bad, get, getting, having a bad reputation with your boss for not doing your work. So that, that's kind of an economic decision right there, right? So um, would you say that people make those types of subconscious economic decisions in their everyday lives? Because I, f I feel like they, they do. Yeah, people do from time to time stumble across economic thinking, even if they weren't really using the economics of it. So that's why I like your use of the word subconsciously. That kind of reflects that sometimes people aren't even meaning to. So like, for example, um, I think people in general and students in particular, when they remember opportunity cost, when they remember to think about what they would give up if they did something, which is kind of related to the example you gave, um, that's actually economic thinking at work. So one of the more interesting ways that'll come up with me is, you know, I'll have students in my global studies. I'll have students in a push with me. And, uh, you know, nobody gets along with every student, but I tend to get along pretty well with my students. And I pump econ in all my classes, we have a running joke saying, when you take the best class that Leiden has to offer. And it's kind of a running gag. So when it's go time for senior year and my students have the chance to take econ, sometimes they'll come to me and they'll say, Miss Rooney, I, I, I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm, I'm not gonna be taking econ because you know, with, with music, we, we have to take these two periods. And so I really need to push stuff into my schedule. And if I take consumer ed online during the summer, that is my graduation requirement. It means I don't need to take econ, which is the other way to get that graduation requirement. And so, um, uh, Mr. Rooney, I'm not going to be taking your, econ class and they sometimes say it with a look on their face like they're expecting I'm going to punch them right in the face and go what you're not taking it and I look at him and I smile and I go well believe it or not that's actually an economic decision and since I haven't gotten the chance to teach them opportunity cost well I can't really go into it the way we just did but that is something I'll tell them that you know that that actually is an economic decision um, maybe to throw another example at you that maybe hits a little bit more with marginal stuff like you were talking about, Ayush. 
Um, you know, there, there's a there's a running joke that's I got from college people. I know people use it all over the place. The running joke is, how do you know the economically smartest kid in any class? And as a matter of fact, in my econ class, it's a running joke to point out who the economically smartest kid in any class is. The answer, the kid with the lowest A. Because if you think about that for a second, if you've got a 91 and somebody else has a 96, it's just going to show up on the report card as an A. At least at our school, we don't have minuses, pluses. So once you've got a 91, why work harder? Why not take that energy and effort and push it into some other place that maybe needs your time and attention. So very often when students go, you know what? My grade in that class is as good as I need it to be. So I'm gonna take my time and I'm gonna push it over to this area instead. I don't need to get 100% in everything. I just need to get what I want. And once I got what I want, why don't I put my time in other places? That's actually economic thinking too. Thank you so much for your answer. And this is sort of like a question for myself and just something that I wanted to ask you. So I was just wondering if you know Jacob Clifford from ACDC Econ. As a matter of fact, I do. Uh, Mr. Clifford was at EFL um, in his uh, like master's degree in economic education program. And I was the mentor teacher when we were there. So I've, I've actually met him in person and spent... Uh, a week with him in the program that I did with that, that you guys did. Okay, because the reason I asked was um, he has something called the ultimate review packet. And Ayush and I both used that while studying for our APE contest. And we found that really useful. So that's just something that I wanted to ask you. But talking now about EFL. So Ayush met you because you were one of the instructors at EFL and I had Debbie Henny as my economics instructor which for the audience and everybody listening was an economic summer camp that both Ayush and I got into. EFL stands for Economics for Leaders. So we would spend uh, quite a bit of time learning about economic concepts and how it helps us in the world and also improving our leadership skills. So could you please talk about some of the economics-based games we played at EFL and how you think they taught students about real-world economic scenarios? Sure. Um, I think my best go-to example uh, that would hit the question you're asking there about how it shows about the real world is the game that we played in EFL um, about the orange market. Uh, there were actually two. There was the orange market we had early in the week, and then we did a variation on it toward the end. Um, that's just our our latest version of that game because there's an online thing that already goes with it through a great group called Mob Labs. But I've been doing this long enough. I did my EFL as a teacher back in 1999. And back then the game was called a market in wheat and kids run around the room trying to sell wheat bushels to each other. Just like you guys were clicking keys on a, on a computer keyboard to try to sell oranges to each other. Somewhere there in the middle, we went, you know, yeah, wheat sounds kind of old. We should update this. And so we renamed it In the Chips, and you were selling computer chips to each other. 
but it was exactly the same game. It's, it's half the room is buyers, half the room is sellers, and you have costs assigned to you or you have um, value assigned to you, depending on whether you're a buyer or a seller, and you just roam around trying to find somebody you can agree on a price with to, to make a deal. And I think that's really one of the best things that we do to show people how things work in the real world. Because at the end of that game, one of the biggest points in the whole thing is that you ask people, so who determined the prices? Who set the price of oranges in the orange game? Who set the price of the computer chips? Who set the price of the wheat? And the answer is you did completely freely just by making arrangements with some person on the other side of the buying and selling arrangement. And one of the reasons I think that's so important is because in our global studies class, which is a class for freshmen, I have questions that I ask them on the very first day of the econ unit. And one of them is who sets prices? And the number one answer they give is the government. And, and that's just not so. The, the, the second most popular answer they give me is, well, the businesses do. And that's a pretty common way of thinking, you know, oh, we're at the mercy of the companies and whatever else. The orange game shows you prices are set by interactions between buyers and sellers in the market. And another super important thing it shows you about the real world is at the end we ask, okay, so when you sold an orange in the market or when you bought an orange in the market, who won, you or the other guy? And the answer is you both did. The way I've always phrased that in my global studies class, I'll say to the kids something like, when you buy a Nintendo Switch from Walmart, who wins, you or Walmart? And almost all of them groan and go, Walmart did, because they don't want to have paid the price that they paid. But when we point out, when you buy a Nintendo Switch from Walmart, you both won. Because you thought the Switch was worth more than the money you paid, otherwise you wouldn't have bought it. And they thought the money was worth more than the Switch, otherwise they wouldn't have sold it. And so then we get into, so Walmart did win, but they didn't beat you. They bought, they beat Target, they beat Best Buy, they beat the other people who are trying to sell switches because you bought from Walmart. And well, yeah, you won, but you didn't beat Walmart. You beat the other people who also want to switch and are just kind of sitting back waiting for the price to go down, right? No, they're always, well, when it gets cheaper, I'll buy it. Well, they're going to wait longer than you because you have one and they don't. So that's the only way in which you won. Prices are set by free interactions between buyers and sellers. And that's the beautiful thing about the market. I think this also does a good job illustrating, I think that Orange Game also does a good job illustrating the concept of uh, the importance of competition in free markets, because uh, if a free market, you know, is suffering from a lack of competition, then, you know, that can lead to an increase in prices that can lead to a decrease in innovation. For example, if you take a monopoly, right? Um, 
in our local area uh, a couple years ago, PG&E, which is like the Pacific Gas and Electric Company, they started decreasing the quality of their products and they start their their products actually started becoming more dangerous starting wildfires across the across the uh, across the state of California because uh, they were a monopoly they didn't have any competition so they didn't have to uh, put as much work into maintaining their products they didn't have to put as much work into providing the same high quality product that they w- would have needed to uh, versus if there was 10 PG&Es across the uh, Bay Area and they were all different companies then now guess what they have to provide a high quality product to compete with each other and uh, try to win the consumer's heart out or try to that's that sounded kind of weird but like essentially try to uh, win the consumer and make the consumer pick them and uh, I think another example is uh, what's that company called oh yeah Comcast right so uh, I'm, I'm sure everyone has complained about Comcast some point in their life but uh, the Comcast has absolutely horrendous consumer service, c- customer service, and the reason they can get away with that is because, uh, for, at, at least in the Bay Area, they're pretty much a monopoly here. Uh, li- like nine out of ten people have Comcast as their inter- a home internet provider, so uh, Comcast can pretty much get away with bad customer service, and uh, people will pick them regardless because even though they have bad customer service, their product is pretty good. Like, uh, like their their internet is relatively fast compared to other um other bay area providers so uh i was wondering if you could talk a little bit about you know what you think is the importance of competition in the market uh what what policies the governments can governments can use to kind of maximize competition uh and how uh a lack of competition can you know increase prices stifle innovation etc Well, Ayush, the fundamental point you're making is exactly right, that competition is such an important part of the way a market functions properly, that when you don't have enough of it or it's not structured correctly, um, you could even apply one of the economic terms, market failure to it. And um, this is one of the questions on kind of like the, the SAT of economics, that is out there for lots of teachers across the country. It's called the test of economic literacy. Um, I use it as the pretest and the post-test in my class. And one of the thing, one of the questions says, which of the following is most important for an economy to function well or for a market to function well? Something along those lines. The correct answer is active competition in the marketplace. And on the pretest, most people don't know that answer because I think you're right. It's it's something people don't often recognize enough of. The one thing I would point out, though, is if we talk about something like an electric company like PG&E, and cable is not exactly the same, but it's often in the same boat. Standard economics does talk about something called a natural monopoly. And in the case of a natural monopoly, the solution isn't really to provide more competition. The solution is either called price regulation or profit regulation. Because in standard economic theory, these things called natural monopolies, they they happen when something called economies of scale to, to, to provide service to huge amounts of people Imagine if there were, let's even just say three different companies 
who said, we will provide the transmission of electron electric service to your house. Well, they're not going to let each other use any of their poles or equipment or anything else. So if even with just three companies, you'd have three sets of power lines running everywhere. Whereas now we only have, have one. It, it's just not cost efficient to have three sets of power lines running across a whole state. Um, another example of this that's often given is the other kinds of utilities, like, like water, like natural gas. You know, if, if, if there were three water companies and there, there had to be three water mains running up the middle of your street because you and the guy across the street from you wanted to get your service from company A, and so you have to tap into that one, but then your next door neighbor and the guy down the block want company B, so they have to patch into a whole nother. Well, that's just not cost efficient. So in the cases of natural monopolies, economic theory says you go for something called price regulation or profit regulation. Now, even electricity can have some competition in it. Because what we're talking about is the wires, right? That get to your house, just, just the guts of the system. Well, in the economic biz, that's called transmission, where we have started to open up the idea that people can buy the actual electricity from other companies. The company that owns the lines gets to control the transmission but now you have six or seven different choices for who's providing the electricity that's flowing through the lines. We did that in my town when I was mayor of it, and we were able to negotiate with a company that would give us green energy and even cheaper than some of the other companies involved who were bidding to get our business too. And, and that's the effect of competition, getting better quality stuff at cheaper prices because they know to get the contract, that's what they have to offer customers. So does that, does that kind of get at what you were talking about? Yeah, I think it makes sense that um, obviously for natural monopolies, it's very difficult, right? Because with things like PG&E, uh, it's, it's like the amount of infrastructure necessary for somebody to provide gas and electricity to millions, uh, if not like tens of millions of homes across the Bay Area. Like that that just makes it easy for PG&E to kind of dominate the market. But um, yeah, I, I think the other examples of monopolies you gave were great. And it really illustrated the point about the importance of competition well. Um, so I think Nathan will ask the next question. Well, if, if you don't mind me adding on, um, I think an important thing for everybody to remember is most of the things we want to buy are not what we were just talking about with the natural monopolies. Um, most things are not run on those kinds of uh, economies of scale, as they call them. And so for most things, your point originally was absolutely on the money. We have got to have active competition to make the market work properly. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Because for like small consumer goods, like th those are very easy to produce, sell or uh, uh, at a large scale compared to uh, some of the other examples we gave. So I want to kind of move us to a different topic now. And just for everybody listening, 
we'll give you an inside scoop on how we actually run High School Not So Much A Musical. So we initially meet with the guest speakers and then after that we develop a list of one to three questions just so we can have a starting point. And the first question that I used to ask was asking Mr. Rooney about his career and education and stuff like that. But then since then, it's just been follow-up question after follow-up question showing how we develop an organic conversation. So when we're developing these questions for our guest speakers, one thing that we came across specifically for Mr. Rooney and I found it really cool was that he was a former member of the Illinois Senate and he served as a mayor for Rolling Meadows and a member of the Royal Rolling Meadows City Council. So Mr. Rooney, could you just expand a little bit about that and tell our listeners about what your job was, what you actively did as a former member of the Illinois Senate? Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, I guess I would say to start with, um, one of the things in our area, which is true today in many areas, is that the, the mayor of your town is very likely to be a part-time person. Um, a lot of people still think that most cities today, you know, the mayor is the CEO of the city. Um, over a hundred years ago, the progressives, which I know you guys learned about in APUSH, um, the progressives brought in this, this reform that, you know what, the people who run cities really should be professionals. So if you live in a city or a village that has a city manager or a village manager, they're the CEO, the, the mayor of the town or the president of the village, they're more like the chairman of the board of a company. Most chairman of the boards, they don't go into the office every day. And, and that's the way it is with a lot of mayors and a lot of village presidents around the country. So my students, when they found out about the mayor thing, when I was mayor, they were like, how can you be a mayor and, and, and still teach here? Well, because if you're the mayor, it's a part-time thing. I, I, I don't run the city on a day-to-day -day basis. I, I run the city council. A lot of that changed when I got a seat in the Illinois Senate that I was lucky enough to have for a little over two years. Um, that's a whole different system. Those folks, when the legislature is in session, th that is your full-time job. And so my school got us um, uh, a young teacher um, who was looking to kind of get uh, a foot in the door at our school. And they said, hey, we, we've got an offer for you. Why don't you teach with this guy that we have who's in the Senate? And when he's down in Springfield, because the legislature's in session, then you'll be teaching the class, N not as a substitute teacher, because when he's not in Springfield, he'll be here at school and the two of you will be teaching at the same time. So under that arrangement, when I was in the state Senate and I was down in Springfield, my days were so much different than they are as a teacher. Um, generally speaking, you would have your, your whole morning stacked with people who wanted to come into your office to meet with you about a particular issue that they felt passionate about, a particular bill they wanted you to sponsor, a particular bill that they got somebody else to sponsor, and they were told, if you can help me round up votes in the Senate, so they would go around lobbying people, that would take up a big chunk of the morning. Uh, in Illinois, the legislature generally convenes at noon, 
Um, and you have committee meetings sometimes before that. You'll have committee meetings when it's over. So we would be down on the Senate floor um, when most people are eating lunch and however long it took business to transpire, that's how long we'd be there. And then you usually have uh, one committee that you were serving on at about three o'clock, 3.30. You'd have another committee that you were serving on that would meet around four o'clock, 4.30, maybe even sometimes five. And then when you finally go back to the office at the end of those committee meetings, you still got to run through the email. You still got to look at the list of phone calls that came in and who to call back. And then when the legislature's in session, all those people visiting the Capitol to lobby, they're having events in the evening for their members that they want you to show up at. So even when the business day was done at like 6.30, 7 o'clock, then it was time to go to this one lobbying group's, um, you know, cocktail hour that they were having. And then this other lobbying groups, they were having their evening meeting. And so pretty much when I was in the legislature in Springfield at the state capitol, I was starting at seven and getting done at about nine. That that 14 hour day was a pretty regular cycle in, in that particular arena. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, Mr. Rooney. We got some great discussions and knowledge out of it. Just to sum it up for our listeners, competition in the market is the utmost priority which government should focus on promoting and which the foundations of capitalism is based on. While the capitalistic economy system does have its flaws, it's so far proven to be the most successful as it has empirically lifted hundreds of millions, if not billions, out of poverty. To our listeners, make sure you subscribe to our channel at High School Not So Much A Musical and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this episode. Watch out for future episodes where we speak with Steve Heimler, a history god who's probably saved you in your AP World, AP US History, or AP Government classes, and two TikToking twins who promote STEM and youth advocacy. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of High School Not So Much A Musical, and a big thank you to Miss Juliana once again. That's our show for today, now roll the credits. High School Not So Much A Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal and Nitin Zolodanki. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like this show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you for listening and see you next time.